TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. And I'm here. And we're back, Felix. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a little while. Uh, doesn't summer extend through October, Felix? <laughs> yes, the new summer, I hear, is an extended version. Everything always gets better. Exactly. It has been way too long, and it's great to be back with you, Felix. I confess, one of the best parts of like an extended break is feeling the love from some of our listeners. And then, in particular... All the people who reached out asking when we will be back and what we will be talking about and how we're thinking about the million things that are happening every day. It's really just fantastic. It's wonderful. I'm back in the classroom teaching MBAs oh, and yes. had the joy of having former listeners in my classroom like it used to happen in exec ed, which is always a really special joy. Yeah. So what should we do? We should pick a really exciting topic that like everyone's going to love. <laughs> to remind people why they listen in the first place. Exactly. Maybe something slightly technical. Well, yeah. So you want to talk about the bond market, Felix? Oh my God. What better topic <laughs> than the bond market? <laughs> <laughs> this is like the worst thing to start a season with. I know. But I we know. have to test our listeners' resolve to stand by us. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine if you proposed a new podcast and you would say our first episode is going to be about the bond market? <laughs> it's like that Nick Lowe song. You got to be cruel to be kind. Okay. We're doing our best as always. <laughs> All right. So a special episode about the bond market because it has been a while and things have changed and we should talk about it. Let's do it. So me here, the bond market. Yeah. What is happening? It's pretty crazy. <laughs> so let's remember what's happened over the last year plus. Felix, actually about a year ago, we did our first episode about interest rates. We did. And it was when we were concerned and interested in what happened when the Federal Reserve started raising rates a lot. And then things started to break. You might remember there was things going on in the UK. Yeah. And we talked a whole lot about what can happen when short-term interest rates rise a lot. And then, of course, Felix, in March and April, we talked about the banks and we talked about SVB. And they were victims of those higher rates, right, which tanked the value of their bonds. And made their deposits a little bit more mobile. And then, of course, that seemed to all get better. Yeah. But now we have a new phenomenon, and it's really quite a remarkable one. And that is that the long-term interest rates have started to rise quite 
quickly and quite violently. So this is a distinction we're going to draw between these short-term interest rates, which, for example, central banks control, like the Federal Reserve. And that's what we saw through much of the last 12, 18 months. But they don't control long-term interest rates, which are fundamentally determined by the market. And so what we've seen in the last really three or four months is that long-term interest rates have spiked very sharply to the point where in the U.S. they're now at 5%, which is almost like a 15, 16-year high. Yeah. These are long-term rates for 10-year bonds. And so they have gone up from something like 3.5 to almost 5 And by the way, it's not just the U.S., Felix. It's happening all around the world. So we see things happening in Germany, not as quite as precipitous. In Japan, you know, you might say, well, Japan has zero interest rates. Well, not anymore. And that's a big change for them too. And so I wanted to just talk a little bit about what changes when those things change, and then why did it happen? And maybe try to figure out what happens next. So that's what I was hoping to talk a little bit about. Yeah, fantastic. I think it's such an important and interesting topic. Maybe at the outset, I'd like to acknowledge two things. (laughs) Yes. Part of the confusion around bond markets is that the language is just so complicated and confusing. So bad. There's yields, there's our star, there is a term premia, <laughs> and so on, and so on. And so I hope that we can shed a little bit of light on what's going on, perhaps in language that is a little more accessible than the typical conversation that we hear on Wall Street. And then the second thing that strikes me is somehow bond markets are always a source of worry. Yeah. Remember when yield curves first inverted? So long-term interest rates were lower than short-term interest rates. Oh my God, this is typically a sign of a recession. Right. And now we go back to normal and you might look at it and you might say, oh, actually that just says the economy is basically in good shape. Maybe the soft landing that we hoped for for so long, maybe it's a real possibility but no, <laughs> as people now look at the rise in long-term rates, again, there's the sense that, oh my God, perhaps we're in some sort of trouble. So one question I have for you is, do you think people's response to the bond market says more about their sort of general attitude about the future, <laughs> whether they're optimists or pessimists? Or is it right. can we make, say, technical sense out of the changes and then sometimes say, no, actually, this is a reason to be really careful. And sometimes we say, no, it might be costly. It might mean your investment strategy is not working very well for a short period of time, but it's not really a reason to be fundamentally worried. Yeah, I think that's a great way to begin. And by the way, on your confusing language part, let's not forget the most important confusion in bond markets, which is prices and yields. So this is this weird world where when prices go down, returns or yields, expected returns go up. And so people find that so confusing. And so there's this, what is a bear market? What is a bull market? It's super confusing. So let's just fix ideas and we'll just talk about long-term rates. I think that's an easy way to talk about the world. And we'll also just talk about short-term rates. And then on your second point, I think... Look, I have continued to believe for like the last 12 months, we are living through just incredibly confusing times. And so everything is a little bit of a Rorschach inkblot test, Felix. Data comes in and then people see things (laughs) and they're more likely to see what they want to see than necessarily some true reality. Plus, it's super confusing. But I think we're also just living at a time where you're getting data all over the place. And so let's try to make some sense of how to think about that. But you're absolutely right. People definitely see what they want to see. 
So as you think about the big regularities that strike you as interesting, so we see long-term rates come up. What are the possible set of culprits? Like what could be causing this change in rates in such a short period of time? So I think there's really three possibilities for what has happened here. And they're kind of good news, kind of no news, and kind of bad news. <laughs> so the good news version is exactly what you alluded to, which is we kind of expect long-term rates to help us understand future economic growth. Yep. And so when long-term rates rise, and they have been depressed for actually a very long time, well, then we should think of that as being fundamentally positive. And the way to think about that is, well, if we expect future growth to be quite strong, then we should expect capital to be fairly productive over longer periods of time. And we should be willing to pay for the ability to borrow and deploy capital at those high rates. So if future growth is pretty good, you kind of think to yourself, that should be associated with high rates. And conversely, what we've lived through for the last 10 or 15 years is very low long-term rates. Yeah. And as you said, that can be a way to think about either an impending recession mm. or, man, we're just not growing as fast as we used to grow. So one story here, Felix, is the good news version, which is, hey, long-term rates are higher. Actually, there's not going to be a recession. Future growth, think AI, think everything else, is going to foster technological revolution, productivity growth, and we are off to the races, Felix. Yeah, so that's sort of the positive side of things, right? And I think it's totally plausible. Just yeah. to be clear, it's totally plausible, and it could be true. Yeah. I guess the reasons to be a little cautious about it is it happened very fast. Uh -huh. Why did it happen so fast? Why did it happen so violently? But look, the economy in many ways remains very, very strong. And so maybe you can convince yourself that that's true. So I think that's the first way to kind of understand it. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, that seems exactly right. And that's maybe the most intuitive way to think about it. And then in addition, I think the other consideration that many people will have on their minds is what happens to inflation because we worried about inflation so much. And inflation, to some extent, is just a proxy for what will the Fed interest rates be in the short run. And so you can look at the higher interest rates that we see in the long term as an indication of some belief that the Fed will have to keep these short-term interest rates much higher for much longer. And part of that might be reflecting inflation expectations. There, I'm not so sure if that's really a big factor. Exactly. We have bonds that are inflation protected and bonds that are not inflation protected. And so you can look at the difference in them. And it seems that markets basically believe that the biggest threat from inflation is maybe not passed entirely. We sometimes have these surprisingly strong reports that reawaken some of the concerns. But basically, I don't think anyone thinks inflation is like an unsolvable, really big issue. Right. And so if inflation is not driving it, and as a result, Fed concerns about inflation are not driving it, that's at least one channel that doesn't seem to be as important for the explanation of long-term interest rates as you might think. And by the way, that's also good news. That's also good news, yes. So you can think about both of those as being firmly in the good news camp and very positive. So... I think that's two big reasons to understand why long-term rates are different than short-term rates. One big reason is because of future expected inflation and what's going to happen over time. The second reason is because of forecasts and expectations of future growth. Mm -hmm. And then there's a third possibility, which is somehow that when you give money to the government for longer periods of time, you are worried about other stuff. 
Maybe there's some larger uncertainty that you are worried about. And then in order to tie up your capital for that longer time, you demand a higher premium. So that is the third possible explanation of what's happening here, which is a little more disconcerting, I think. Yeah. So we got the good news version done. Let's do the kind of medium news. There's actually, by the way, a little bit of a no news story, which is there are things going on at the Federal Reserve and at the Treasury Department that are just idiosyncratic and weird. The Treasury Department happens to be borrowing a lot of money right now. Yeah. And the Federal Reserve is engaged in this process of what's called quantitative tightening and selling down their balance sheet. So it's possible that there's just some weird idiosyncratic things going on in these markets, which is not that generally interesting, but could be driving things. Yeah. Now, of course, there's always an issue about, well, why aren't there more buyers or so on and so forth. But it is also just true that there's some technical things in markets that can drive these things. But let's go to the more interesting and maybe concerning version, which is that well, wait a second, there's greater uncertainty over something much more fundamental, which is driving up these long-term rates. Well, what might that be? Well, now we get into territory that's a little more disconcerting, Felix, <laughs> which is we have not seen these rates for a long time, and we have government finances that are perhaps in more disarray than they've been in a long time. Yep. And so now you have to admit the possibility of some event that is a little bit more complicated and problematic that makes people just not want to hold U.S. government bonds anymore. And so they are really much more cautious. Now, what do I mean by that? These rates are not high relative to what Paul Volcker did in the 1970s and 1980s. <laughs> yes, We're not yeah. near breaking anything. And the answer is maybe, but maybe not. So <laughs> debt to GDP back then was 40%. Today, it's, let's say, 120%. Yeah, yeah. Deficits were back then like 3 to 4% of GDP. Depending on the number and on the year, we're more like 6 7%. Yeah, yeah. And when rates start to rise with that much debt, you have to start to think about weird outcomes, Felix. <laughs> and I think that's the thing that I think is now a possibility that wasn't really a possibility in my lifetime. Yeah. Now you have to ask yourself, well, the U.S. government has to finance itself, has to borrow at higher rates and higher rates. And those higher rates make it even harder and harder to service their debt because their interest costs go up and up. That's right, yeah. And those possibilities, I think, are now not dominant, but they're on the table in a way, Felix, that they haven't been in. In a very long time. In a very long time. Yes. For the last 30 years, I'm sure people have told you, Felix, like, the U.S. is on an unsustainable path. What's going to happen? It's all going to break, so on and so forth. Yeah. And that was something that I think that could be easily dismissed for a long time. And so now you have to put a little bit of probability, Felix, on something happening that is a little bit weirder. And moreover, just like we saw when short-term rates rose, sometimes things can just break, like those UK pension plans, yeah. like SVB. Business models can just break, and especially in financial markets. These rates are used for everything. They're kind of used to borrow. They're used to invest. And so if somebody has taken a position that can go the wrong way, then things can break. So those are the two new things. I think there's two bad outcomes, like something breaks or we're beginning this period where we have to worry about solvency in a way that we didn't have to ever worry about solvency. Yeah. And I think from these kinds of worries, of course, it's a very short step to thinking about government dysfunction in the U.S. Right. We now have two parties who are completely unwilling to rein in spending. In fact, when you think that the deficit essentially doubled this past year, 
on the back of a strong economy. Right. It's not as though we had a very a big recession or anything like that. And it points, interestingly, I think, to big, important institutional differences that then also show up in bond markets. So, for instance, across the EU, you have the old Maastricht Treaty that wanted to limit deficits at 3% of GDP. And they've never really been totally successful at doing it. Right. They made a big exception during COVID to allow the deficits to rise to 5%. Mm-hmm. But overall, you now see that these exceptions are passed. You see levels of deficit come down. In particular, which I find so interesting, mm. In the weakest countries, so Greece, Portugal, I think is expected to almost have wiped out its deficit. So the Eurozone, I think all in all, on a quite promising trajectory, always a little slower than we would like, always a little less reliable (laughs) than we would like. But you know, it's like the general direction at least is the right one. And in the US, you see none of that. I think our spending is predicted to eclipse six, seven, eight percent. Yeah. And there's no obvious pathway how to fix it. Exactly. I love this expression. I don't know if it's original to him. Paul Krugman sometimes talks of the U.S. government as an insurance company with an army attached to it. (laughs) And that sounds exactly right. 75% of our spending is basically some kind of insurance programs. And all of these programs are super valuable. They get rapidly more expensive over time. And that's the part of government spending that no one wants to touch. And so all the conversations that we have in government right now, this disputes between Republicans and Democrats and what to cut and what not to cut, they're over a fraction of the budget that is just not important. I think that's the source of pessimism. If we can't even start a conversation about the parts of government spending that are the big problem that we're unwilling to touch, that doesn't bode very well for the future. And add a one last dimension to this, Felix, which is, I think you're totally right to highlight political uncertainty within the United States, the ability to negotiate these kinds of things. But of course, government debt is bought often by other governments. Yeah. And we finance our debt with a fair amount of foreign investors. And of course, the Chinese central bank has been a big buyer. We have central banks around the world who are big buyers. Well, that political fragmentation and chaos you described in the U.S. is perhaps also true globally. (laughs) And so if you think that we are going to be able to finance our debt in the same way that we used to, I think that's wrong. And indeed, the PBOC made a statement in 2013 about limiting their investments. And the U.S. has done a lot of things to make domestic financial institutions buy those treasuries. But at some point, you end up pushing on a string. Yeah. The one final thing we should talk about, Felix, is the way this just ripples through people's lives. Yeah. So let's talk about that after the break. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.
Okay, so Felix, that's like at 40,000 feet. But let's talk about how it impacts companies and households, and maybe households first. Mm -hmm. How do you think all this ripples through to people's lives? Yeah, so a first really obvious implication is that longer-term interest rates that are much higher imply much higher mortgage rates. We've now seen mortgage rates in the 7 7.5%, and that has profound implications for who can buy a house, the kinds of homes that will be available in the context of a situation, in particular in urban areas of the United States, where housing affordability is a big issue to begin with. So maybe let's unpack this a little bit. What happens when long-term interest rates go up? Well, two things. First, fewer people can afford a mortgage. And so you would think, oh, we have weaker demand. But even more immediate, I think, is that if you have a mortgage, say a 30-year mortgage that has a low interest rates, the last thing you want to do is move. Exactly. And as a result, the supply of homes on the market has come down. It's hard to exaggerate the number. So typically, we have about 2 million homes that are available for sale. Now we have roughly a million homes, so 50% less. Yeah. And that, of course, drives up the prices of homes in addition to the mortgages that have become more expensive. So one of the really terrible things that you have to expect from longer-term rates is that to the extent that homelessness, to the extent that a sense that the economy is not working for the average family, if those are real concerns, those concerns are going to be inflated as a result. Yeah. There is an interesting twist, though, because no one moves out. You spur the construction of new homes. So uh, preliminary estimates are that about 0.2% of an increase in GDP is now due to the construction of new homes because no one wants to sell their existing home. It becomes more attractive to build new homes. And so in yeah. some strange way, longer term, this might actually be a blessing in disguise. Right. And I think there's two really interesting pieces of that at the household level. The first is, it's an artifact, of course, Felix, of these really weird last 10 years where people refinanced in 2020 and 2021 at incredibly low rates. Super low rates. And often yeah. for like 30-year fixed. So that can go on for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, it makes the whole job of fighting inflation with higher rates harder because people aren't feeling the pinch of it in the yeah. mortgage market, yeah. which is also a weird artifact of what's happening here. Yeah, and which is very different in the US and in the UK, for instance, right? Where most people have variable rates and the exactly. banking problems that ensue. Are totally different. Yeah. I think there's two other big things at the household level. First off, in addition to housing, of course, there are these kinds of bigger purchases that people often use debt for. So I'm thinking of cars and solar panels and <laughs> lots of things that you might choose to finance. And that does get affected right away. Yeah. And so that stuff, the decision to put the new solar panels on your home, the decision to buy a car, you're hearing that on conference calls. You're hearing that hesitation that is starting to show up. I will just say there is a flip to all this, which is kind of very good news, which is the kinds of returns you can now earn on relatively safe investments is very high. Yeah. So yeah. if you wanted to buy like an investment grade corporate bond fund, which is like a very high quality kind of thing to buy, you can earn like six plus percent. Yeah, kind of. And that yeah. is a big deal. And I know, Felix, you are interested in the insurance market. You know, things like annuities become really interesting again. Yeah. And insurance becomes super interesting. Yeah. So there are all these things that become more interesting than they ever were before. And especially for savers. 
And for savers who maybe didn't want to participate in the stock market, who were like, ah, I want out of that, that trade-off also becomes, I think, really important as well. Yeah. So Mihir, one of the things I was thinking about is from the household's perspective, many people pursue what they call a 60-40 strategy. So you have 60% stocks, roughly, and then the rest is bonds. And the idea is that they sort of offset each other and create more stable outcomes. What are the implications for that investment strategy, given everything that we go through at this time? Yeah, so that's a great question. And the short version is, that was a really tough way to live last year because both bond markets and stock markets had terrible years, which is something that we don't think about as typically happening. But of course, it happened because interest rates rose so precipitously. And so it is a really unusual circumstance. I actually think going forward, it's not a terribly bad rule, but I do think that bonds are now offering a new set of opportunities. And so the last thing you want to do is kind of overcorrect. Yeah. So you had a bad year in the bond market for the last two years, and then all of a sudden say, I give up. If anything, you want to do the opposite. Yeah. It has proven terribly unreliable, but that doesn't necessarily mean you want to abandon. And especially now as rates are quite attractive, again, assuming nothing cataclysmic happens. That's such good advice because one of the biggest dangers in investing is always that you overreact and don't think about just how unusual the situation has been that we've been in for the last couple of years. Exactly right. And then finally, we should talk a little bit about the corporate piece of the puzzle, Felix. How do you think this might ripple through in the workplace and in how companies think about decisions? Yeah, so high long-term interest rates are obviously not great for companies that think about long-term investments. It makes these investments more expensive and to some extent, it leads us closer to a situation where, say, incredible demand by the government for capital competes with weaker demand of the corporate sector, discouraging exactly the kinds of investments that we would need in order to maintain and perhaps even increase long-term growth. So it's not great news on that front. And it's particularly worrisome in a context where you see Productivity growth has been quite sluggish to begin with. So it's not as though we come out of a period where, oh my God, we see all of these amazing opportunities to build amazing businesses. And then even when you look at overall long-term investments by the corporate sector, the overall numbers don't look so frightening, but they're highly concentrated in a few sectors of the economy. Exactly. And you worry about, so say all this enthusiasm about the metaverse. Where's the metaverse now? All this enthusiasm about crypto. Where is crypto now? If the enthusiasm around AI has a similar trajectory, maybe the few companies that really make significant investments, if they all of a sudden see the future in a different way, maybe the outlook is much more grim than we anticipate right now. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The somewhat good news is corporate balance sheets are relatively speaking, okay. Yeah. So there's not tons and tons of leverage on them, but there are industries where there are. And in particular, you want to just think through like, you know, when the cost of capital goes up by 150 basis points or 1.5%, that makes investments on the margin harder to justify. And in particular, if you're exposed to demand, that is also a function of those interest rates, like go back to solar panels or cars or whatever. Yeah then you're conceivably sandwiched between decreasing demand, 
from these interest rates and then higher costs and a higher cost of capital. Yeah. So that I think is quite problematic. And of course, all of this is in part what we've been trying to engineer to dampen inflation, but it can happen faster and more violently than we had hoped. And that I think is the concern in some ways. Yeah, and it might undo some of the government efforts that take place at the same time, right? So we have exactly. all these subsidies to build a greener economy. And then at the same time, that creates a situation where interest rates are high. And that discourages private investments in a green economy, which is exactly the opposite of what we want. And precisely because they're longer term projects. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay, do you think they made it through an entire episode about the bond market? Oh my God, I think maybe <laughs> our most devoted listeners maybe, <laughs> But only because they know that recommendations are still to come. Yes, that's the good news. <laughs> Let's come back and do recommendations. Okay, we're back with recommendations after a long summer. Tell me, Felix, what do you got? So I was thinking about, should I choose something that sort of matches the episode or should I choose something really upbeat that would make everyone happy? And I went with the first intuition. So I have a <laughs> book that I would like to recommend. It's by Celeste Ng and it's called Our Missing Hearts. Wait, is it about the bond market? <laughs> <laughs> it's not about the bond market. It's a novel and... It's sort of a dystopian novel. It describes a future in which authoritarian impulses reign large in the United States. It's intensely political. There's so many aspects of what she describes. Actually, I don't even really know when she started work on the book, but some of it feels like, oh my God, she had a glimpse of the future where the economy is not doing for many people what it's supposed to do. We then blame China and other countries for part of our troubles. And it leads to an authoritarian government that punishes dissent in a really cruel fashion. But what makes the book, I think, so interesting and worth reading is that it's all told through the lens of a family, a wonderful, loving family. And the love in the family is in part what gets them in trouble in that kind of an environment. And so it speaks to the tensions between the private and the public. It asks these really hard questions that I find so difficult always to answer. It's like, what's your responsibility when you see things not headed in the right direction? Is it hmm. okay to be silent? Do you have to speak out? What's the cost of speaking out? And then it's also a story of how things that you do that at the moment you do them seem to have no significance whatsoever that in the end turn out to be really critical. Hmm. If you like thinking about this political, this economic moment in time, and if you like to read about it in the format of a novel, I think it's a wonderful read. Wow. Not one to make you happy, just like our episodes on bond markets, but I think a memorable <laughs> read nevertheless. It sounds wonderful. It doesn't sound like the beach read, but it sounds no. like maybe curling up by the fire during the winter or fall kind of a read. Yes. So I'm going to go for something considerably lighter, which is I've previously recommended this TV show called Only Connect from the UK, but now the New York Times has a game that 
mirrors that same idea oh. where you have to connect four things that are alike out of a grid of 16. It's so hard. Oh my <laughs> it God, so, it's so difficult. <laughs> I'm so glad you've tried it. It's tough, right? It's tough. But it is so fun and so rewarding. Yeah. I think the whole New York Times games department is just killing it. Anyway, so Connections is a new game there. And it's based on that TV show that I've recommended in the past called Only Connect. And what I find so fabulous about Connect is in retrospect, it's almost impossible to understand how you didn't see the connection. But then <laughs> right. when you first look at the words, it's really hard to get. Yes. What a great recommendation. Yeah, it makes your mind work in different ways, which is really, really fun. Yeah. Okay, hopefully that made up for the whole episode on the bond market. What do you think? Absolutely, no question. <laughs> Excellent. So this is it for tonight. Thank you everyone for listening. We're delighted to be back with you for this season. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. 